0: We'll hear argument this morning in case 061221, Sprint United Management Company versus Mendelssohn. Mr. Kane?
1: Chief Justice Roberts, and may it please the court, a basic principle of evidence the need for foundation, explains why the Court of Appeals should be reversed. An employment decision is made by the person who made it, the decision maker. If some other person harbors bias, that's unfortunate, but it's not probative of a claim by a plaintiff who's not affected by it. This Court's discrimination cases, both in the employment context and in other contexts, Uh, consistently focus on the decision-maker's intent, not on the intent of other persons.
2: If you were to read the district court's minute order, and it's just that short minute order, uh, as saying that evidence of pattern in practice simply is not admissible, that would be error, would it not? I'd be error to read it. if, if If that had been his ruling, that would have been error.
1: If the district in my
2: court did, you don 't introduce pattern and in practice that, that can 't be
1: yeah, if the district court had held that under no circumstances could a pattern or practice of discrimination be shown, I think that would have been error.
2: is there anything in
1: the other parts of the record colloquy comments by the district judge that
2: you think respondents have called to our attention to indicate that he had this sweeping view uh,
1: of no i don 't think that 's what the court was focusing on. Um, The uh, district court focused on the nexus of the disputed witnesses to the plaintiff. Um, The district court did not hand out a cookie-cutter ruling at the courthouse door. The district court did not say, uh, oh, this is a discrimination case. Uh, Here are the rules of evidence I apply in a discrimination case. What the district court here did was consider Sprint's motion in limine, which was grounded in the evidence that had emerged in discovery in this case plaintiff then responded to that motion in limine by trying to explain why the evidence was relevant given the facts of this case. Uh, The plaintiff then filed a witness list which explained what each of the disputed witnesses would say in this case, and the plaintiff finally made an offer of proof which, again, elaborated on what plaintiff contended, that disputed witnesses would say, in this case. We, we don't really
3: know, do we, what the district court's order was based on, whether it was based on 401 or 403. Uh, it, did, did the district court explain its order
1: at all? Uh, Didn't, did it? Uh, the district court d- did not specifically invoke Rule 403. Um, I think it's, it's, my reading of it is it is grounded in both 401 and 403, but um, The motion limine relied on both 401 and 403. Uh, The district court told uh, counsel that she wanted the uh, jury to be focusing on the claims of this plaintiff and not be distracted by claims of others. Well, to the extent that it was grounded on 401, it was
4: error, wasn't it? Uh, I don't think so, because I don't think there's — Well, if if you've got three supervisors uh, and one is discriminating and another is discriminating, isn't that some evidence that you're — Uh, in uh, an industrial situation in which discrimination goes on and, therefore, doesn't it have the tendency that amounts to relevance under 401?
1: We have here five persons who out of 15,000. Well, what about my question? The answer to the question is no, it doesn't. Uh, As this Court taught in Teamsters. uh, No relevance at all? uh, A pattern of practice is not established by anecdotes. And what we have here are anecdotes of five persons out of the 15,000.
4: What about my question? Uh, we, we have evidence that there are three supervisors. Two of them are, are discriminating. Isn't that some tendency? Doesn't that have some tendency to indicate that in an equivocal situation, the, the third one, was it may not be strong evidence. It may not win the case. It may not be powerful, but it has the tendency that that uh, gets you over the the line on 401, doesn't it?
1: That's why why I started with the importance of emphasizing foundation, because the, to to uh, for I rele- want to
4: em- I want to emphasize
1: my question. Yeah, before but you for get re- to for, re- for relevance to exist, there would have to be a foundational showing.
5: What do you mean by that? You've re- repeated several times there must be must lay a foundation. You recognize, I think, in your reply brief that some other supervisor evidence would be relevant and admissible, but you, you refer to the foundation. Tell us what you think a proper foundation would be.
1: The foundation, uh, Justice Ginsburg, would be some linkage between the decision-making supervisor and the, the supervisors whose uh, acts or conduct is assailed by the plaintiff. And if there is no showing of nexus other than the fact that they both happen to draw uh, a paycheck. What you mean by
5: nexus is they they both work in the same physical facility. Is that a nexus?
1: Uh, No, I think the nexus requires more than a common zip code. (laughs) What if if you've got 20 supervisors and you've got evidence that 19
4: of them have discriminated after making uh, expressly discriminatory remarks? Uh, The the 20th is, is the subject of the action. Uh, is the evidence of the 19 admissible?
1: I think. Is there a nexus there? I think in, in a company that was that small, where a nexus could be inferred that there was consultation or that there were directions from more senior management, then I think that would be an appropriate foundation. All right. So, so if we've got 19 and there's a question of
4: one, we've got a nexus. Uh, if we've got three uh, and there's a question two are accounted for as discriminatory and the question is the third, we don't have
1: a nexus. Is that the way you're doing the math? I'm sorry, did I understand your question to be three supervisors in the whole company or three supervisors out of uh, this vast company? That At this
4: point, about? I'm saying three
1: supervisors out of a whole company. Will, will that do it? Uh, not absent some Reason to believe that they conferred or they received directions. Three supervisors,
4: and that's all there is in the company. That consists of the company. If we got an nexus, then if there were,
1: if two out of three, I, I think there might be an argument that uh, at least it was a jury question at that okay. at that stage. But here we're dealing with a 70,000 employee company. We have five witnesses who are principally assailing two persons. Um, uh, so you, you agree that it
0: has to be a case-by-case determination? There's no absolute rule either way?
1: I think there, there should be a, a guiding principle, and the guiding principle is that other supervisor evidence should be presumptively irrelevant, uh, and that would be the rule in the normal run of cases, at least in dealing with entities of this magnitude.
0: I assume it would be addressed as it w- was here in a motion in limine. The, per- the, the plaintiff would say, here are the witnesses we intend to call, and the company would say, we don't think they're relevant because, as you say, there's no, no connection between them. And then the judge would decide.
1: That's, that's on we, the issue of relevance. That's normally how it would present itself. And, and indeed the District Court normally would consider Rule 403 considerations at that stage. Excuse as well. me. Did, did I mishear you
2: it's a 7,000 person?
1: Seven seventy thousand. 000. Seven, zero, 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 zero. Yes.
2: If that's the way to do it,
6: you didn't do it that way, did you? I mean, as I read it on they put in here on 163A, the motion that you made to the District Court said that you have to be similarly situated, plaintiff has to have been similarly situated with other employees, and you put that in quotes, similarly situated, and then you say employees may be similarly situated only if they had the same supervisor. Period. Not, it wasn't a period, actually, but the rest of the sentence is important. Then you cite Aramburu, which is where the Tenth Circuit said that. So I don't see how you can say this wasn't a 401 case. You were saying they weren't similarly situated, period. And then the district
1: judge virtually quoted those words. The motion was grounded in both Rule 401 and — Well, that may be.
6: But the — I don't see — I mean, that may be. But this is the argument you made, and this was the argument the district judge adopted. Is that not so, or is it so?
1: That is so, but what the District Judge adopted was grounded in the offer of proof that had been made here and the evidence that was proffered here. Um, the District Court was not issuing a blanket ruling that would have governed any potential uh, how case, how do we, case we was,
3: how do we know that that's what the District Court adopted? Uh, I have, is it the order on 24A uh, of the appendix to the, uh, to the petition? Yes. And it doesn't mention it doesn't mention which which of the two of your arguments the district court is relying on.
4: It doesn't mention the offer of
5: proof. And did the Tenth Circuit read it to be an absolute uh, prohibition that it must be the same supervisor? It, similarly situated requires proof that Paul Rudick was the decision maker. That seems. Uh, as though the, the the district court thought there w- it must be the same supervisor, and I thought that's how the 10th Circuit read.
1: And I think that's that would be the rule in the normal run of cases where there is no showing of connection. Or We're not talking about the rule.
3: Country. We're trying to find out what what it was that the district court did. Now the the the, the court of appeals assumed the worst. <clears throat> I mean, assumed what makes the case the hardest for you, and that is. Uh, the Court of Appeals assumed that the district Court relied on 401. I- is it customary to assume the worst?:
1: No, I think it would be customary to assume that, particularly on an issue of evidence, that the district court uh, was presumptively correct, and that, that if, if there's any
3: basis on which the district court 's decision would have been but, correct, uh, the, the district court 's decision is
1: upheld. It huh? could be affirmed on that ground. that
6: 's why i don 't understand your answer i 'm confused. What I said, and you seem to agree, is different from what was just said, but you also seem to agree. I thought that you said in your brief that you have to have been, quote, similarly situated, all right? <laughs> employees must be similarly situated to point. That's true, isn't it? I'm quoting the brief from page 163, and then you say employees may be similarly situated only if they had the same supervisor. Then the district court says that plaintiff may offer evidence who are similarly situated to her, and then, quote, similarly situated employees, quote, for the purpose of this ruling requires proof that Paul Ruddick, his supervisor, was the decision maker. That's why I thought it was fairly clear, since he used the same words and substituted the word Paul Ruddick for the same supervisor, that he was taking that right from your brief, where you made that general argument and said
1: nothing about the particular case in those sentences. Well, the general rule applies, because there was no showing here of any relationship between the decision at issue here and the you t- You, you,
3: you want to defend the harder ground, I understand. But what, what Justice Breyer has just said is not necessarily so. Uh, the similarly … the similarly situated … Uh, argument applies under 403 as well. If they're similarly situated, the, 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 the time it would take to, to let in these, uh, these other, uh, other things and rebuttal of them, plus the, uh, uh, prejudicial effect on the jury would be outweighed by the fact that they're set, that they're similarly situated. And therefore that it is stronger proof I don't see that one can tell from the district court's order whether the district court was relying on 401 or 403 and certainly the you just don't want to defend 403 i i think you're digging a hole for yourself no i
1: absolutely want to defend 403 uh if there was any minimal probative value here uh justice scalia all the countervailing 403 factors are present
7: well don't we have to address 403 in any event because the tenth circuit Ruled that the, as I understand it, ruled that the evidence could not be excluded under four o three. It would have been an abuse of discretion.
1: That is what for the child t- judge to have excluded it under four o three. That is correct. Um, had the, the Me Too evidence been admitted, then uh, we we would have had to respond with what might be called, you know, not you either evidence. And then the plaintiff would have made a rebuttal to that showing, and we would have had trials within a trial on whether these couple of persons that the plaintiff identified as potential bad actors uh, were, in fact, bad actors. Would that be done
0: typically at the motion in limine stage? I mean, do you you establish whether or not there was discrimination in the Me Too cases uh, at trial or prior to the trial outside of the juries?
1: I think it can happen both ways, and really here it happened both ways, too, because although the, it was teed up as a motion to limine, uh, as the trial evolved, the district court um, actually relaxed her ruling and expanded it to permit attacks both on Reddick, who was the direct supervisor, but also decisions made by uh, Blessing, who was Reddick's boss. And uh, the district court explained that uh, as she thought about it further, um, that additional bit of of latitude should be given to both sides because um, there was evidence that Blessing had consulted with Reddick. But that that didn't
5: present the other supervisor, which I think is more uh, a better way to comprehend this, because me too could be 10 witnesses working under the same supervisor, but these two people, as I understand it, were in the direct a chain of supervisory uh, command.
1: That's correct, and that, to me, is the proper test. If, um, if the decision maker supervisor was demonstrated to be biased, then I think that has some relevance uh, because it 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 raises a question as to whether that bias. But that's be- not
5: other supervisor. That both supervisors of this employee. She's in a unit that includes both superior officers i thought that the issue here was simply other supervisors uh, witnesses who work for other supervisors people for whom the plaint with whom the plaintiff had no connection
1: and more importantly uh, the other supervisors were persons that were not shown to have any connection with the decision maker with respect to this plaintiff and and so Yes, if, if you're going to find other supervisor not to include the chain of command, then that is the reason why I think there is no relevance and uh, Rule 403. But
5: you said, I thought you said in your reply brief that other supervisor evidence could be relevant.
1: It could be relevant if there were a showing that the bias on the part of the other supervisors somehow tainted the de- decision-making of the instant uh, decision-maker. And In the cases that that Ms. Mendelson cites in her brief, those are all cases in which um, a directive was given from a more senior official to the decision-maker. What we have here are decision-makers in far-flung areas elsewhere within the company with no showing whatsoever that there's any relationship between them. Um, Each of the five disputed witnesses here testified in deposition that they had no information whatsoever to shed about the decision-makers with respect to Ms. Mendelson. And so in those circumstances, there's no foundational showing of relationship, no fa- foundational showing of nexus. Was there
2: an attempt by the plaintiff during the discovery phase of the case to show other evidence of pattern or practice, statistical evidence, or, or was, was it just these five people? Was that all that the plaintiff presented?
1: It was just these five people. Uh, the only statistics in the case were that the number of persons over 50 in this particular uh, unit, the business development strategy group, actually increased, and that the oldest person at any particular level within the business development strategy group was retained and not laid off.
0: What what about the spreadsheet evidence? I thought there was some effort to show connection through the uh, spreadsheet showing the age of the dismissed employees.
1: That spreadsheet was linked to some supervisor named Kennedy, who bore no relationship to this department, no relationship to these decision-makers. Let's assume that that allegation is untested, but let's assume that Mr. Kennedy was correctly identified as a bad actor. Again, that has no relationship. It might have everything to do with any layoff decision made by Kennedy or made by someone Kennedy supervised, but it bears no relationship to Ms. Mendelssohn's circumstances because there was no showing that a similar spreadsheet was used by any of her decision-makers. Um, let's assume that uh, Kennedy is, is like uh, the two others, Stock and Voorhees, perhaps a bad actor. Uh, that just doesn't shed any meaningful light on uh, the circumstances of the plaintiff here, and even if it did su- shed some some, I'm bit of a light, little puzzled. How
3: many bad actors do they have to be before you can draw an inference that someone superior to the bad actors had a motivating part in the old old situation? I,
1: I don't know that. A, a I mean, writer, isn't that what the inference they're trying to prove is? There's somebody
3: upstairs that told everybody what to do,
1: and they had full unfair discovery to try and demonstrate that. But uh, their own witnesses testified that they, they were unaware of any relationship between. Um, themselves and their decision maker and the plaintiff and the plaintiff's decision maker
2: does the record show in this 70,000 person company how many supervisors there were do we know that no it doesn't say Uh, Justice
3: Kennedy let me um, ask this though does it show whether the person more senior to the five supervisors involved here was the same person or a different person
1: Uh, it is a different person uh Sure, if you go far enough up the, <coughs> the corporate ladder, eventually next, you'll end up with the a — common. next com- step up. Not some. the next step, not the next step after that, and not the next step after that.
0: Your, your theory doesn't depend on where in the hierarchy the other supervisors are located, I take it, if there's a connection. In other words, if there's a, a lower-level supervisor who discriminates and that is somehow communicated to the supervisor in question and whatever, the you know, the, the point is that the other one wasn't disciplined or, or something — that would still, under your theory, that would be admissible, correct?
1: If a — no matter what level, I would agree that if a, if a discriminating supervisor is in the chain of command and supervises the decision-maker, then I, I think there's — No, no, really- I'm
0: talking about a situation, let's say it's a, a lower-level supervisor outside the chain of command who commits another, a Me Too uh, Act, but that is communicated to the other in a way that suggests, for example, that the company tolerates it or, or accepts it. I, I take it that that would be — potentially admissible, subject to 403 under your theory.
1: I think that's right. If there's a showing that, that it, the, the actual decision-maker could have been tainted by it, I would agree with that.
2: I see your white line. Does 404 bear on the case? Rule 404, the rule of evidence? Um,
1: yeah, I think it does. Uh, I think that uh, if you're going to have uh, – what we have here is, is, in effect, an assault on the corporate character of, of the company and not – uh, an assault.
2: Have we said that 404 applies to corporations? Corporations have a character?
1: Uh, I don't think the Court has ever held that. I think the individual has, has a character. And, and there's no character evidence problem with showing that a particular decision-maker engaged in other discriminatory conduct, because I think that, that, that falls within the exception to 404. But uh, where the decision-maker is somebody else, then what you really have is an assault on the corporate character, and I think that's impermissible. Unless the court has further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, Mr. Kane.
8: Mr. Gar? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Evidence of discrimination by other supervisors within a company is sometimes, but not always, admissible in a disparate treatment case to help prove discrimination by the plaintiff's own supervisor
0: that's under under 401 it's not always admissible or you need 403 to reach that conclusion
8: i think you need to look at the evidence under both rules the first question being whether it meets the minimum evidence threshold in 401 and that's a very low threshold set by the federal rules and the second question being whether it may be excluded under rule 403 which would
0: would you think there are situations where other supervisor evidence is not admissible under 401 itself
8: Yes, we do think that there are some instances where other supervisor evidence is not in this wonderful one. For example, if you have a large company, you have a plaintiff in the Chicago office claiming that her supervisor had it out for her and she wants to put on the testimony of of an employee in the Seattle office, who two years ago complained that her supervisor had it out for her. We think that that would not be relevant under 401.
3: Well, but, but here you have a, a company of 70,000 people.
8: You have a company of 70,000 people, but you have allegations that supervisors in the same division implementing the same company-wide reduction in force plan in the same time frame and giving similar explanations under similar circumstances, engaged in discrimination. We think that the district dissenting judge in the Court of Appeals was right to say that evidence of that kind is at least marginally relevant, which would then put the focus on whether this evidence could be excluded. Well, it's hard to see
3: what wouldn't be marginally relevant. And you think that's marginally relevant? It, it has to be a different supervisor in a, in a different time frame. I mean, Sure.
8: Well, I think you've got other situations as well, Justice Scalia. I think we've got a situation of a general comment of discriminatory animus, for example, uh Older people just don't get it, something like that. I think you're the, the, by a different supervisor. I think even if that's within the same office, the plaintiff is going to be hard pressed even to meet the minimum relevance threshold. But the relevance threshold, as this court has recognized in the Fernco versus Waters case, in the Huddleston case, this is a broad threshold that allows evidence in, and then we look at the other parts of Article of the Federal Rules of Evidence, to see whether it may be excluded. How do you
7: articulate the rule that separates these situations?
8: Well, I, I would point to the, Uh, several criteria, Justice Scalia, in determining relevance. First, whether you're dealing with the same kind of alleged discrimination and a common catalyst. Second, whether the the proffered witnesses are working in the same corporate vicinity. Third, whether they're alleging discrimination in the same time frame. Four, whether they're alleging a pattern or practice of discrimination. Well, those are the
7: relevant factors, but what do you look at the factors to determine? What's the test for determining whether they're sufficient?
8: Well, you would look at the proffered <clears throat> evidence. For example, in this case, you have evidence that all the uh, proffered witnesses were terminated under the same company-wide reduction of force. You've got a common catalyst. In this case, you've got uh, employees who worked in the same geographic vicinity, the headquarters of Sprint, the same office, office complex, or at least the same uh, vicinity. You've got witnesses who were terminated on the same day. Ed- is that
3: relevant, the same vicinity? Uh, uh, your are I think it's more likely The opposing counsel has said there are three supervisors up. What is the same vicinity? It, have anything to do with it?
8: Where you have supervisors in the same division, in the same vicinity, carrying out the same plan, providing the same distinctive explanations in similar circumstances, a reasonable juror might infer that plaintiff's own su-
2: supervisors. Even if those supervisors uh, rift uh, 2,000 employees and only three made this complaint?
8: Yes, with respect to the minimum threshold of relevance. And keep in mind, once No matter how
2: many employees were under the three supervised — hypothetical case, three supervisors. no matter how many employees were under them, no matter how many employees were risked, the, the three is sufficient so that uh, these witnesses could
8: testify. Well, I, I think if you're talking about pattern of practice, maybe that doesn't — it certainly is a matter of law that's not going to prove a pattern of practice — and the employer can make that argument to the district judge, to the jury, and that evidence could be limited or excluded. If you've got, for example, a, a, super, a proffered witness who's complaining that supervisor in the same complex used the same dis, distinctive explanation that my supervisor gave me. For example, in this case, several of the witnesses were going to testify that their supervisors told them they were being they're removed because their positions were being eliminated, and then they later found out that younger persons assumed their jobs. But same I, I think
2: it in, in this. Case. Case and in all cases that the plaintiff has the burden of laying the foundation for this evidence is that not correct?
8: The plaintiff has. And a you burden- say the
2: foundation is satisfied if they're the same supervisors in the same division. I, I, the, I, I, you want us to write that in, in a case as a rule. The plaintiff Without has. Reference to how many employees are involved?
8: The plaintiff has a burden of showing that the evidence is relevant, Justice Kennedy. I
5: think foundation- you said in your brief that the plaintiff does not have to. Lay a foundation, and that's the difference between you. Uh, so, I, with respect to Justice Kennedy's question, your brief takes the position that it is not necessary to lay a foundation in order to introduce other supervisor evidence.
8: That's correct, and that's why I said the plaintiff has to show that the evidence is relevant, that it has some tendency to make a fact of consequence more likely. This, this court in the Huddleston case confronted well, one, a similar
3: one. One would have some tendency. I mean, some tendency
8: and just as clear
3: this what about is about one instead of three would that have some tendency i guess it would
8: it, it might and that probably would be a strong candidate for exclusion under 403 in the fern co why by the way do you think
3: this was excluded under under 401 rather than 403
8: well, we, we acknowledge that the record isn't precisely clear on that. We well, think then why
3: shouldn't it be assumed that it was it, it was done properly rather than improperly?
8: Be, be largely because of what was said in the order and because of the way it was What pre- was
3: said in the order? I see nothing in the order that indicates it's under 401.
8: Well, on, it doesn't say 401, but the reason why this evidence can't come in is because the and the proffered witnesses didn't have the same supervisor. That, the orders on page 24. But what that, the Court excluded was any evidence of pattern. It's very
3: relevant to the 403 determination. It's
8: relevant, but it's certainly not determinative. And we think in a case like this, where this kind of evidence is the critical evidence for the trial, and it came it's up not picky, only. It's pretty
3: picky, picky on the, on, the, on the trial court, I must say. Uh, not, it seems to me this order should be, should be uh, given, uh, um, it should be treated uh, as, if it could be sustained, it should be sustained.
8: With respect, Justice Scalia, in this case, this proffer of evidence was the crux of the trial, the critical issue. It came up not only in the context of the motion of limine, it came up in the context of the motion for a new trial. And if you look at what the district court said in denying the motion for a new trial, she said again, and this is on page 436 of the JA. She says none of the proffered evidence makes it more likely that the decision makers in this case discriminated against the plaintiff. That's relevance language. You're quite right.
0: The determination of, of the relevance of the Me Too evidence and I assumed also the 403 status needs to be made in the motion in limine stage or is it a question for the jury?
8: Well, the district court serves as a gateway, and district courts have tremendous discretion under the federal rules to determine whether or not evidence is relevant and whether or not it should be excluded under 403. So that determination is made by the district court. In some cases, as happened in the the Huddleston case, that was a 404B case. The court acknowledged in some cases evidence may go in and then the jury may instruct that that evidence is allowed.
0: So if it's a – if it's – if on the Me Too evidence it's a he said, she said type of case – uh, does that get admitted to the jury, or is that excluded at the motion in limine stage?
8: Well, if you're pointing to other acts of discrimination by other supervisors that are relevant, then that would be allowed in, and the, and the employer would come in and present their counter-evidence. Well, only,
0: it's only relevant, of course, if it's true. And if, if the, the company denies that the Me Too episode uh, even took place — Don't you have to have a separate trial on that before you can determine whether it's even admissible?
8: In our system, we put that evidence before a jury. If it's relevant under the Federal rules, it's admissible. We put it before a jury. I get back to
0: the the predicate to my question. It's only relevant if if it happened. And And, and it seems to me we've had a lot of discussion over what's relevant if it's happened, but we don't know how we determine whether it happened or not.
8: in, In the Fernco case, the Court said, that the evidence doesn't have to conclusively demonstrate the fact. It simply has to be relevant. We put relevant evidence before juries. We instruct them on the consideration of that evidence. We permit the defendants to put that evidence into context. And then we ask juries to draw a conclusion. So an allegation,
0: an allegation of discrimination in the Me Too context is automatically relevant?
8: No, I think you'd look at it under the relevance threshold, and then I think you'd look at it under 403. 403 is going to exclude a lot of this evidence. It's going to exclude the barely evidence, the barely relevant evidence. But it's, we would expect a trial court in this kind of situation to make some kind of findings as to why this evidence is excludable, and we would expect the Court of Appeals not to undertake a de novo 403 balancing in its own instance.
5: Mr. Carr, do I understand correctly that the reason the Tenth Circuit thought that the District Court was ruling under 401, making relevance determination, was that the Court of Appeals had a precedent in the area of employee discipline. And the, the Tenth Circuit said, well, the District Court was following that precedent, but that precedent doesn't apply. In this situation. So that's why the Court of Appeals, as I understand it, read the district court as applying an absolute
8: ban. That's correct, and that's the way this case was litigated all the way until the reply brief in this case. If there are no further questions.
0: Thank you, Mr. Garr. Mr. Egan?
9: Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. If we'll turn to 3A in the White Book, the Court of Appeals properly understood that this was a blanket order based on only one fact. If you weren't supervised by Paul Reddick, it was not admissible. At page 2A, the Court says, Prior to trial, Sprint filed a motion in limine seeking to exclude, among other things, any evidence of Sprint's alleged discriminatory treatment of other employees, relying exclusively on Aram Buru, Sprint argued that any reference to alleged discrimination by any supervisor other than Reddick, it was irrelevant. Throughout, and let me mention here, Your Honor, that the order of things was not as uh, Mr. Kane got it. He said the order was grounded on an offer of proof, if I may address the chronology. On December 15, 2004, Sprint filed its motion saying that if it's not the same supervisor, it doesn't come in. There's no mention ever about the facts of the proffer. Never. It never came up below.
0: We respons- Also, what if you have a situation that's been referred to earlier, where you have four other supervisors that are presented as Me Too evidence. They're in the Los Angeles office. The uh, uh, defendant supervisor is in the Fresno office. Does that ... is that evidence relevant?
9: It depends what the evidence is and what it's tied to, Your Honor.
0: It is just that they, they are alleged to have fired people for an impermissible basis under the Age Discrimination Act as well.
9: In your hypothetical, was it during the same common employer initiated action such as a reduction in force? Oh, all right,
0: let's take it and say okay. it is.
9: What the Court of Appeals noted here was that, in this case, it makes a difference that we're talking about a common employer-initiated event. We're not talking about... Well, but doesn't that beg the question? We
0: don't know. This isn't a pattern-in-practice case. You don't have evidence of uh, a company-wide policy of discrimination. And take my hypotheticals. There are just four people who are alleged to harbor age-based bias in the, in the Los Angeles office, no connection to the Fresno supervisor at all, other than that they work for the same company. Is that enough for relevance?
9: If there is no connection, it might not be, Your Honor.
0: might not be relevant.
9: might not be relevant. Let me say that- But, but, you, but,
3: but you assert that the mere fact that it's pursuant to the same reduction in force
9: is enough of a connection. Yes, Your Honor, because the standard arises out of out of Article Four, which is entitled "Relevancy and Its Limits." There are no categorical bars within Article Four, except when uh, Congress and the Court have mentioned 401 has no categorical bar. The test is, does a fact have its evidence that it has any tendency to make a fact of consequence more likely than without it? So it depends in Rule. F- 401, there is no categorical bar. In Article 4, if there are areas where there are problems, we list them. 407, Uh, 411, no mention of liability insurance. 410,
0: 404.
9: 404B, Your Honor. And in this case, the lower courts have used 404. We did not address it. I don't think anybody really did in a brief other than the government mentioned the Huddleston case. The Huddleston case is important because it says that there is no preliminary determination. As to whether or not something's relevant, what you do is the court looks at all the evidence. The evidence that Ellen Mendelson wanted to offer had connections to it. Well, and suppose
6: you're,
7: if you're right on 401 and 402, would, do we not still have to go on and decide whether it would have been an abuse of discretion for the trial judge to exclude this under 403?
9: Your Honour, I believe if we that find that
7: it would not have been an abuse of discretion, then how could we affirm the 10th Circuit?
9: Your Honour, I believe that what you have to do is look at what the court did. Because what the Court did was it ruled on what they presented, which was not anything having to do with the weight of the evidence, confusion of issues. There's nothing indicated. And the Court of Appeals uh, quoted its own law that says we are in no position to speculate. As a superintending court, they ruled only one thing, a categorical bar of evidence that was before it. And they said, that's wrong. You followed the wrong
5: case. But I thought they said that it should be admitted. I thought they went to the opposite extreme.
9: I'm not sure that they went to that extreme. Their language is this, Your Honor. They say, based on what we see, and and they had the proffer in front of them at that time, and they also have the full transcript, which hadn't been talked about, and how Ellen Mendelson's case and her theories tied into these people.
5: How did they? Your Honor,
9: in several different ways. Um, Barred evidence of culture, we had evidence of culture from open remarks that someone needs to be blessed with lots of runway ahead of them in order to get a good rating, Bonnie Hoops, and being told she was too old for the job right after she receives that memo, being told openly and repeatedly, I'm too old for the job, that there are too many Are, are these
0: episodes that were necessarily communicated to the supervisor at issue here?
9: No, Your Honor, but this is on the question of... So you don't,
0: you don't make a, you don't suggest that he was even aware of these other uh, Anecdotes.
9: We do not suggest, but what we say is that what was going on in the culture, if you've got a supervisor like Ted Stock openly saying, I can't wait for rips so that I can get rid of the older people in my department, that supervisor's conclusion that know. it's okay.
0: But you're conceding that we don't even know that that comment was communicated in any way to the supervisor at issue here. He may not have been aware of it. The supervisor, he may have been in Fresno and that supervisor in, in Los Angeles.
9: You know, what we do know is that they attended the same meetings, a key leadership meeting that took place in January of 2002 that covered something very important to our case, the establishment of a forced ranking system and also a discussion of the rifts that are ongoing and continuing. They're at the same meeting. It's after this meeting where Jack Welch is presented to the uh, group that they come out with a philosophy i assume
0: you can i assume there's no dispute over any direct evidence you have that the supervisor was being guided by a company policy or or statement or uh the the RIF program that was discriminatory the issue here is whether or not you can bring in testimony that with which has no demonstrated connection to the supervisor.
9: Your Honor, the rules of evidence simply talk in terms of not demonstrated connection. It doesn't exist. If we look at the rules of evidence, the standard and the standard we believe applies here is a two-step methodology, it would be, number one, what is the party — the thing the party is trying to prove, such as culture, is that a subsidiary fact consequence, something that's been missed in the petitioner's position and even in the district court is that Rule 401 says that you have three levels of evidence. The ultimate issue, and petitioners always said, this doesn't prove that Reddick discriminated against Mendelssohn. That's the ultimate issue. We had many intermediary facts to which the evidence related. They are facts of consequence, and the evidence had a tendency to show these facts of consequence. May may I
4: ask you to elaborate on that somewhat? Uh, I I went through the to, to, to kind of down what the facts of consequence were, I I went through the offer of proof. I I don't have my notes in front of me, but I I think my recollection is right on this. It struck me that the admissible evidence that was indicated by the offer of proof boils down basically to this. There were three employees uh, who would testify that uh, following their dismissal, some or all of their work was done by a younger person. Yes, sir. Uh, There was one employee who would testify that he or she saw a spreadsheet uh, in front of one supervisor uh, that indicated age. There was one employee uh, who would testify that her immediate supervisor had made age discriminatory remarks, and another employee would testify that her supervisor's boss had made age discriminatory remarks. Now, basically, out of this company of seventy thousand, that seems to be the sum total of the uh, of of the, uh, the 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 kind of circumstantial evidence of culture uh, that that you presented in the offer of proof. Am, am I selling your offer of proof? No, you're not, year? Your Honor.
9: The, uh, you have you have hit it precisely, and we believe that with culture, it's the openness of what's going on. The openness, the number of events goes to weight. All the weaknesses and frailties of the evidence go to weight. And we never got to that portion of determining the weight of the evidence. All right, so the, what,
6: what should we do then? That is, sorry, go ahead and yes, conclude. That I want to ask this after you finish your yes, answer
9: to Justice uh, Souter. Your Honor, we believe that. Go all ahead and th-
6: finish your answer to Justice Souter.
9: <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. The, uh, this ties in, in several different ways, if I can take them off, to culture, to modus operandi. And this wouldn't require discriminatory conduct. For instance, the storyline that jobs have been abolished and you're them to younger. That's where that would be, a operandi. The fact that the Alpha Shadow rating system, they're under the same rating system that's not supposed to apply to employees like Ellen Mendelsohn and those who we are presenting. What, it if, was what if only of one, th- one
3: of these three had existed? Only one of these three?
9: One of these three what?
3: One of these three other employees who complained about age discrimination. Would, would that have the same tendency to it, show it?
9: It depends what it's offered for, because relevancy — You think one is enough? If it's culture yeah. and it's the CEO saying that we want to bring the average age down, which never
3: happens, oh, that, but under — I'm this, not talking about somebody up at the top. I'm talking about somebody on the same level as the supervisor that, that you're concerned with. One other supervisor in this, in this company of 70,000 has uh, is accused of having made uh, age discriminatory decisions.
9: Well, if they're just accused, no, your honor. The assumption has well, to all be. of these are
3: just accused. We have none of this has been proven,
9: your honor. We have not even addressed at any time the content of the uh, decision. I mean, the content of the dis- of the uh, testimony. So Never. I, No, but let's
4: uh, let's assume the testimony at at least shows these points that 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 you and I agreed the the offer of proof uh, uh, offers to prove. They're going to be met, I, I think it's reasonable to suppose, they're going to be met by counter-evidence. Yes, sir. Uh, we're going to have litigation uh, on these points, and um, they're, they're going to take, in effect, become subsidiary chapters in this trial. And what concerns me, I guess, is uh, that at the end of the day, it's, it strikes me as though there is reason to believe that the proof itself uh, is not going to be anything close to overwhelming. We will have had a potentially confusing trial on this subsidiary third-party evidence. And we seem to be very close, if we have not gotten over the line, uh, of, the, of the subsidiary evidence, in effect, uh, being substantially uh, misleading uh, or, or prejudicial. And, and it, basically, I'm raising a question of wait under 403. What's your response to that?
9: My response, because I'm hearing you talk about the many, tri- many trial issues. First of all, as you know, it will not happen here. We had a pretrial January 29, 2007, after, uh, before Sprint had filed its petition for cert in which we discussed, well, will this be a longer trial? One and a half, maybe two days. Mm-hmm. The fact of many trials, Your Honor, it just doesn't happen that often. You can try joinder cases. I've tried joinder cases with Eight plaintiffs, and you handle that with instructions. The answer isn't to keep out possibly probative evidence. The answer is to let Sprint put on counter evidence. What happens
0: in this case, let's say there are five Me Too situations presented, and the Court makes a determination in each one, and the jury finds uh, for the plaintiff, and then it's appealed, and the, the argument on appeal is, well, in three of those five cases, there wasn't age discrimination, and here's why. And that, and that evidence is when and the Court of Appeals agrees. Yeah, those three cases shouldn't have been admitted. Is that reversible error?
9: Your Honor, I think that what you handle that with is limiting instructions. It would be the evidence of acts or statements of anyone else that you've heard are relevant only to the intent of Paul Reddick. No one would contend that the Bonnie Hoops was critical. No, but in
0: the, the, under my hypothetical, in the three cases, the Court of Appeals, let's say, determines that the alleged statements did not occur. That's the argument, saying this was admitted to the jury in three of the five cases, and those statements did not occur.
9: At least that's part of our adversary system, Your Honor, where we have both sides presenting a counter. The super, Is the, that
0: reversible error on appeal?
9: That it, five mid yes, two sir. cases,
0: and the Court of Appeals determines that three did not occur.
9: If it's determined under your hypothetical?
6: That's, that's exactly what's sort of bothering me about. Yes. So you are a trial lawyer. Yes,
9: Your Honor. All
6: right, and I'm not. And what's worrying me most about this is I'll say something that will muck up quite a lot of trials. So therefore, the sentence that jumped out the page here was where the Court of Appeals says that Rule 403's exclusion is an extraordinary remedy that should be spared. used sparingly. Is that a general rule? Because my impression was, and this is why I ask you as a trial lawyer, is that if you take 401 and 402 and read them literally, we'll have trials that last a 1,000 years, and really that the way the trial judge keeps the trial under control is to say, well, maybe there's some slight tendency here to make a fact more likely than not, but even if that's so, this is a waste of time. And I thought that kind of decision is what trial judges are there to make. Yes, sir. And then, I've, therefore, I thought that this Court of Appeals is trying to second-guess that trial court judge, unless that trial court judge is making an absolute rule, which he may have been. But uh, as soon as we get into this case, I thought we might do quite a lot of harm by trying to let the Court of (laughs) Appeals second-guess trial courts on this kind of thing. Now, I'd appreciate your response to that.
9: Yes, Your Honor. That requires under 403 requires a balancing. And I think you must have, contrary to what, all due respect, Justice Scalia is suggesting, Rule 403 is the only rule that expressly says substantially outweigh. We have no evidence here. Well, then how are we
6: going to — I'm not arguing about what it says so much as I'm arguing about who has the right between the Court of Appeals and the trial court to decide. Your Honor, and all I'm worried about — and you tell me if that's the law in the Tenth Circuit or elsewhere. I was an appeals court judge for quite a while, and I think we'd never, or not never, but hardly ever second-guess a trial judge on that kind of question. Yes, sir. you tell me if the rules are different in the Tenth Circuit. Do they out there uh, second-guess trial judges on this kind of question no, all the time?
9: No, Your Honor, but — All right.
6: I, if they don't normally, why should they hear? If this kind of rule is, as you say, this kind of evidence is like any other evidence — Any other evidence at all may be relevant, or it may not be, depends on the case. Waste of time or not, depends on the case.
9: Yes, Your Honor. And the problem is blanket evidentiary exclusions before trial. Uh I've got your blanket, Mark. And so once you're there, we have no quarrel if the Tenth Circuit, and I think the Tenth Circuit leaves room for sending it back, remand it, and then the Court could still make rulings, as the Tenth Circuit said, on cumulative nature of evidence, hearsay objections. These haven't been addressed. Sprint has been
6: no, not I'm saying. Me? Well, you've got my point, but you're just not answering mine. I'm point. sorry, Your Honor. I'm not understanding. And I don't want to repeat it. I'm not talking about whether it's hearsay or not. I'm not talking. I'm talking about whether it comes in 401, 402, 403. Yes, that
9: issue. Yes, Your Honor. We believe that it does because the evidence has a tendency to make more probable than without the evidence facts of consequence on culture on impeachment, on pattern, on pretext. That's our standard. We have no indication here that the judge ever engaged in a balancing. Mr. Egan,
3: what if I think that had he engaged in a balancing, it would have been an abuse of discretion not to exclude it? What what if if I think that? Then then what happens with this case?
9: If you believe that it is so clear, then, of course, that would be if you believe it is so clear that it's an abusive discretion not to exclude it, then that is the prerogative of the court to do. But it must be done under this standard, Your Honor. That is, the judge looks at the evidence and asks a question, like you would for submissibility. What would a reasonable jury say? And is there room for disagreement? If you have federal judges, for instance, who disagree on admissibility. No, but
3: I, I'm worried about having five trials, uh, you know, one trial turning into six trials. Uh, I mean, those are the factors that I'm concerned about.
9: I understand, Your Honor. But let me just say this, if I might. Discrimination cases are important. In the McKinnon case, Justice Kennedy wrote for the unanimous court in saying, every time a single plaintiff advances the cause and prevails in a discrimination case, it serves the national public purpose. So it's important. And the idea of there being cases on this, the courthouse doors should be open. The decision is — What if I
0: assume your rule cuts the other way? Uh, Let's say in this company of uh, 70,000 or 17,000, whatever it is, there are 1,000 supervisors. Four or five are alleged to have discriminated on the basis of age. I assume the company can call the other 995 and say, are there any allegations against you? Did you fire people? And did you, in some cases, keep the oldest one? And then they'd have to, you know, they'd say yes. And so the the Me Too evidence works both ways, right?
9: Absolutely. And that's important, because in your Court's cases and jurisprudence. So
0: if you're talking about culture, what is the culture of the company if 995 supervisors don't supervise, don't discriminate in their decisions, and five do?
9: Your Honor, the culture, they have the right to bring on evidence, but the trial court retains the discretion. And I hope this answers Justice Breyer's question also. Of course, retains the discretion. To keep out marginal evidence
7: well maybe just as an example you can take mr burrell and mr hoops and explain why their testimony should not have been excluded under 403 as i read through it the only thing you have as to either one of them is that they were replaced by young women in their position
9: uh,
8: that's
7: that's it as far as admissible evidence for either one no now no. if you do that 403 balancing there why doesn't that lead to exclusion
9: Because John Burrell's evidence goes to pretext, Your Honor. And pretext under the Reeves case is something that is highly, highly important, and highly important to the trial lawyer. His pretext evidence is twofold. He was going to get a job before he knew that he was riffed. He goes to apply for the job after the riff, and he's told, sorry, you've got a secret adverse rating. Now, mind you, the company says... We don't use these ratings. Now, in Ellen Mendelson's trial, without corroboration, then she's isolated. So that's John Burrell's important testimony in this case. John Hoops, he's told by a vice president, why can't you hire someone younger? Why would you hire someone age 48? Which indicates that at Sprint, it's something that is determined to be okay.
0: So that's- Also, if if, if the company can admit evidence- Uh, to show the opposite of your Me Too evidence by other supervisors, and you say five shows the culture of discrimination, how many are they allowed to admit before uh, to show the opposite culture? Presumably more than five if they say this isn't representative. You've got to look at these 15 others.
9: I I can't pick a number, Mr. Chief Justice. And we're not saying that the five proves the fact, as you said, a proven culture, but it's evidence that is relevant to it. A reasonable juror might No, right, and there
0: are 15 or 30, or however many, is equally relevant.
9: Yes, sir. Right. Yes, sir.
2: Right. You and, said and there was going to be a one, that there was an agreement that says be a, a trial for a day or in a day and a half. Yes, sir. Right. Was that uh, before or after uh, the, the, the premise that this testimony would not be admitted?
9: That was after the premise that the testimony would not be admitted. But, Your Honor, this was after remand.
2: Well, of course. So then, that, you, you, you told us, oh, it can be done in a day and a half. But it was done in a day and a half because these five were excluded.
9: Oh, no, Your Honor, I'm sorry. You, what happened here was the remand order, the reversal remand by the Tenth Circuit came down. We have a pretrial because we're going back to trial. We have a trial on January 29, 2007. I mean, excuse me, a pretrial. And at that trial, the Court asked, well, will this be a long trial, four-week, five-week? We say, well, if you open up Discovery, if they want to bring people to refute, and Sprint said no. And that's what typically well, I don't think that
2: has any, any bearing on the, the, the ruling that the trial judge made that's under review in the Court of Appeals of the Tenth Circuit and that we're looking at here.
9: Well, Your Honor, it goes to whether or not saying that there's going to be lengthy trials. It is some evidence, just like you look at what the actual experience is. Look at the cases cited by the defendant. We cited them in our brief where they let in this evidence. They might it's, just
3: have thought that the game isn't worth the candle. Well, Your Honor, that I mean, you know, they yes. might have just thought, you know, yes, we, Your Honor. we've sunk so much money into this case by now, and it's just not worth the rest.
9: That's fine, Your Honor, but they should not take out the legs from the plaintiffs to try to prove their case. We must squeeze. And that's every, indeed
3: a problem that concerns me. It's not just a question of whether the trial is going to last for three weeks. It's a question of whether at the prospect that the trial will last for three weeks and that they will have to go out and find other people in their organization and depose them and bring them in to show that it's not the culture. They just say, it's not worth the candle. Just just settle the case and and get out. I mean, all of these things are relevant to to how you rule on 403,
9: Your Honor, we're simply asking for balance because other supervisors Doesn't
3: doesn't that
4: get to the point, though? I mean, hasn't the the last hour of questioning from the Court shown that what really ought to take place here is a remand to the trial court for a 403 balancing?
9: Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And I think that's fine. If I might offer some concluding thoughts, because my time's running down. The District Court erred in categorically barring all other supervisor evidence. It was a categorical bar. When you get into the chronology and what happened, you'll see no indication otherwise. Neither Rule 401 nor Rule 403 support such a blanket prohibition. As I mentioned under Article 4, there so
0: is Do you no... think the Court of Appeals erred as well in ruling that the evidence was admissible? Because I, I understand your answer to Justice Souter. It's that there should be a 403 evaluation, and the Court of Appeals didn't allow the district court to undertake that.
9: Your Honor, I think that what my reading of the Tenth Circuit, for what it's worth, is that they were looking at the exclusionary order based on the wrong legal rule and said, we're going to reverse that. And that we see nothing that indicates that the evidence is overly prejudicial, since that's basically all they were looking at. There could be, and we assume that there would be, new motions filed upon remand, in which case we'll answer. Anything going to the merits because we've never been allowed to talk about the content of the testimony itself. Will it be cumulative? Is it overly prejudicial? We, we've and, got... and if
0: on the remand that you've conceded is necessary, that will take place uh, in the context of a motion in limine and and not in the context of a new trial.
9: It should be in the context of going back and being remanded. Uh, for the Court maybe to make determination, but our position is in the context of a new trial. The Court can address any new motion that hasn't been made.
0: So you think a new trial is required uh, for the District Court to make the 403
9: determination? I think that you have to get back before the District Court procedurally. Has this Court
2: said that 403 determinations must always be made on the record?
9: No, Your Honor, you haven't said that they should be on the record, but we're not asking for that. We're asking for some indication of what Well, I thought ruling. that's precisely
2: what you're saying. There's been no balancing shown, that he didn't do the balancing.
9: Well, Your Honor, there should, we believe, if you, as you write the opinion, there should be, uh, the, the court should show their work. You know, it's something that I was taught in grade school. Show your work so we know what you did rule on. They should follow the rules as well. It's it seems just-
3: very strange to me that we, that you, there, there, there's been, the case went to the jury without the evidence you wanted to get in. The jury found for the company. Now, if, if, the, if the trial court is going to ex- properly exclude the evidence under 403, we should then have the very same trial with a new jury? That doesn't seem to be No,
9: different. Your Honor, if I may answer that question. The only thing that can't happen on remand, and I want to make sure this is clear, is that the judge can't exclude on the same basis that caused the problem the first time. That is, well, it's not ready, it's excluded. Not ready, it's excluded. Any other factors would be open.
0: Thank you, Mr. Egan. Thank you, uh, Mr. Kane. You have five minutes.
1: Uh, let me begin by addressing um, Justice Kennedy's question about uh, the Rule Four Hundred Three issue. I think there there are two reasons why no remand is necessary. The first, as Justice Scalia said, is that. Uh, you assume that the order is correct. You don't assume that it's incorrect. But, the, but second- the
5: how can we make that assumption when the Tenth Circuit said, we know why this district judge ruled as he or she did. We had a precedent. It, held, it dealt with employee discipline. We said, categorically, it's got to be the same supervisor, otherwise it's not relevant. The district judge was simply- applying that case to this case, so it wasn't any 403 question. It was, this doesn't come in.
1: Neither that case nor this case involved any attempt to show that foundation, the linkage between these other persons, these other alleged bad actors, and the decision The point
5: is that the Tenth Circuit said this judge made an absolute rule. It doesn't come in. We know why he made an absolute rule. That was all precedent.
1: Oh, I, I think the Tenth Circuit in, in, applied the incorrect presumption. It should have applied the presumption that an evidentiary ruling is correct rather than incorrect. But well, I also what agree did, with — What about the date
6: problem he just mentioned? He said uh, — your, your opponent uh, said that, that when you filed this motion in limine on December 15, 2004, well, at that time there hadn't been any fact-specific things at all brought up in the trial that were relevant to this, and there's certainly none in the motion that I can see.
1: Well, that always will be true in the case of a motion in limine, but the motion in limine anticipated the specific evidence that had emerged in discovery. Well, where does it
6: say, I can't find in the motion, though, there is something on disparate impact, anything that says, well, you see, I don't know about the general mine run of cases, but in this particular case, uh, it's not uh, uh, sufficiently material. It's a waste. It's not a it's — it's a waste of time. Now, we're, I just can't find that.
1: I don't think district judges can be expected to, you know, write opinions that are uh, to be affirmed, to be worthy of publication in enough subsecond. 2nd I think that the district court considers the evidence thrown at him or her, and in this case, all the — Did anyone
6: argue that before December 15th, 2004, that we don't know about the mine run of cases, but this case, in fact, it's a waste of time. Did anyone argue that before December 15th, 2004?
1: Well, that's the time when the party Masking getting ready. Yes or to no, did they, no? Did they? No. Because that's when the court considered motions limiting. Um The court was not uh, setting standards in anticipation of the trial until the trial.
2: You said there were two points about 403. And yeah. The
1: second is I agree with uh, Justice Alito's observation, or at least I think it was his observation, that. Uh, it would have been an abuse of discretion to admit this evidence uh, anyway, and so that gets you easily by the 403 issue. I don't think you need, there's a lot of Court of Appeals cases that say that where 403 factors are obvious, where they're implicit, there's not any obligation on the Court of Appeals part, or on the District Court's part, to, to set them forth and, uh, and explicitly engage in any balancing.
5: Do you not think that there is an important value that the Tenth Circuit recognized in making it clear? but there is no absolute bar. Uh, If we just assume in favor of the district court, when we don't know that the district court didn't take it as an absolute rule, this is a point of law that should be clarified for the benefit of district courts. Either there's a categorical bar, or there's not.
1: And I think that, absent some showing of relationship, of nexus, uh, then the, the, pre- the presumptive rule in the run of cases should be that this evidence should not be admitted. You, you don't want
3: that clarification to be done at the expense of your client,
1: I take it.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course not. Uh, of course not. Uh, let me um, t- uh, respond to a couple of the Solicitor General's points. Um, uh, the Solicitor General, in his brief, said three things with which we agree. It's the plaintiff's burden to lay foundation. Anecdotes don't comprise Uh, a foundation. The
5: government said it was not necessary to lay a foundation, and Mr. Carr confirmed that point.
1: Uh, He did say that, uh, Justice Ginsburg, but that's not what their brief says.
5: Thank you,
0: Mr. Kane. The case is submitted.